welcome to this week's episode of Counterpunch Radio. Uh, I am your co-host today, Joshua Frank. Uh, we're turning the tables a little bit this week because I thought that we should be interviewing Eric Dreitzer for a change instead of Eric doing the interviewing. Um, we can do a little spiel for Counterpunch. We are supported through our donors. Uh, subscribers to the magazine, as well as donations through our website. So please head on over to counterpunch.org and click away. Um, Eric is on the line here. He's out in New York. Eric, how you doing today? Not bad, Josh. Thanks for having me on the program. Really appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, just uh, sitting here waiting for snow, waiting to... Uh, Get out the old snowblower and uh, kill myself clearing out a long-ass driveway. Well, you're the one that moved from Southern California, so no hard feelings, right? Uh, semi-hard. Semi-hard feelings. <laughs> so I thought that uh, we would do a little uh, podcast today and talk about Venezuela. Um, it's obviously something that's hot in the news. And you recently wrote a article for Counterpunch called Venezuela, A Revolution That Will Not Die. Oh, that's an older piece, isn't it, Eric? That's an old piece, actually. That's one of the pieces that I had written uh, in December of 2015 uh, from Venezuela. I published a series of pieces for Counterpunch uh, when I was reporting from Venezuela. That was one of them. But um, my recent piece uh, was called uh, uh, Trump's Coup in Venezuela, The Full Story. I think that's the one you're thinking of. Yeah, but let's let's go back to that other piece really quick, and let's talk about that trip to Venezuela. I actually was in Venezuela at around 2004, 2005, during the height of the Bolivarian Revolution, and had a really great time touring Caracas and some of the barrios, uh, seeing firsthand some of the economic programs that were in place, going to some mercados, some of the local stores, got to go to a medical facility, and really saw how, what the programs were doing for a lot of the more impoverished people. Um, and you uh, went there a little bit later, right? You, you were there just a couple of years ago. Is that right? Yeah, December of 2015, I was there as part of a, a group uh, of uh, leftists out of New York who went down there for the elections in December of 2015, which, uh, looking back, and even at the time, it was pretty clear that they were fairly historical because it was the first election since the ascendance of Hugo Chavez that the PSUVE, that's the Socialist Party, the party of Chavez, did not win in the elections. And so that was sort of the, uh, the re-emergence of the right wing as a powerful force in the National Assembly, which plays very much into what's happening there today. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? I know that you went down there to monitor the elections um, sort of as an outsider and an impartial witness to what was going on. What, what did you experience? What did you see? Yeah, well, I would be upfront and say that I, I would never call myself totally impartial. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm certainly a socialist. I certainly identify with uh, the legacy of Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution and the ideals of that. So I would never suggest that I was 100% impartial. However, I was certainly there and reporting exactly what it was that I saw and exactly what it was that I experienced in a sort of unvarnished way. And some of it was really quite magical and, and, and amazing. And some of of it was uh, disconcerting. Some of it was, uh, you know, 
quite sad. So, I mean, it, it really kind of ran the gamut uh, in terms of reactions, in terms of uh, what I saw. But uh, to, to, to get to the point, in December of 2015, uh, when I went down there, this was, an, this was a very important election because although these were not presidential elections, these were the elections to determine those who would make up the National Assembly. And so the fact that the right wing at the time, the, uh, the, uni- the so-called Unity Roundtable, which is basically a, a coalition of right-wing parties, anti, anti-Chavista forces. Uh, the fact that they won in December of 2015 and regained a majority in the National Assembly, something that uh, really was unprecedented in the history of the Bolivarian Revolution, at least, uh, this uh, in many ways set the, set the stage for everything that's happened since then. I recall uh, within 24 hours of their victory, there were calls for them to march to China Chavez's tomb to shut it down and possibly to destroy it, ransack it, burn it. Uh, there were calls to rip down the portraits of Hugo Chavez from the walls of the National Assembly and other public spaces. So uh, quite literally within 24 hours, the, 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 the war on the, on the revolution was on, as it were. And uh, here we are about three years later or so, and, and that war has continued to escalate. Right. Well, and, and let's go back to rewind a little bit to, I believe, 2002, when the Chavez government was uh, essentially partially overthrown, right? When the military turned on him for a few days and he left the palace, people from the barrio stormed, was reinstated. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know, obviously, a lot of our listeners might be aware of it, but some might not, and how the U.S. played a role um, during that time. Yeah, well, in 2002, the United States instigated, uh, you know, quite directly, in fact, a coup in Venezuela against Hugo Chavez, uh, handpick uh, right-wing uh, representative of the Chamber of Commerce, the business class, the business elites of Venezuela, who, uh, it should be noted, had traditionally run the country quite quite literally as proxies of patrons in the United States. Uh, that, that moment was, in many ways, a watershed moment because it was an attempt by the United States to instigate yet another coup in Latin America as it had done, you know, throughout the previous decades, all, you know, seemingly at will. And uh, this time it failed and it failed quite quickly and it failed quite miserably. And, and part of the reason was that the United States simply overplayed their hand. They overestimated how easy it would be to remove an incredibly popular and incredibly charismatic and, and at least we know now, uh, quite revolutionary revolutionary leader in Hugo Chavez. At the time, I think the Bush administration um, riding high on the early stages of the, uh, you know, huffing the paint of the war on terror, as it were, and uh, they were thinking they could simply overthrow the Chavez government, and it failed. And part of the reason it failed was uh, they didn't have enough support within ruling circles. They didn't have enough support within the military. Chavez had a tremendous degree of loyalty. Uh, He came up in the military, of course, so he was in many ways able to rely on some of the forces that the United States believed would instigate the overthrow. So, uh, but the real story was the popular mobilization. Millions of Venezuelan people, ordinary working class people turning out into the streets, quite literally shutting the country down until Chavez was returned to power. And he did return to power very, very quickly. And uh, that went down as, I mean, as I said, uh, quite a historical uh, moment 
moment, but one that really signaled that the Bolivarian Revolution, not just Chavez as an individual, but the Bolivarian Revolution was here to stay. And uh, it also had the effect, I think, of radicalizing Chavez uh, to the point where he understood that the kinds of changes that he wanted to see and he wanted to be part of implementing and, and moving forward, that they were not going to be implemented in a in a gradual reformist way, that radical that radical action and a radical reorganization of the economy and of the society was necessary. And I think that the 2002 coup in many ways radicalized Chavez and set the course for the next uh, decade or so of the revolution. Now, when he was elected in, what, 98, uh, he wasn't running necessarily on a platform to, for instance, nationalize the oil sector. Um, but that played a role in the U.S.'s interest, correct, in 2002. And can you talk a little bit about that and how that has now definitely a lot of people are talking about it as being one of the main reasons uh, why the U.S. is getting involved now. But then we can kind of jump forward a little bit and talk about the current state of affairs. But can you give us a little bit of the background about that? Well, sure. I mean, oil really figures centrally in everything Venezuela. I mean, we should keep in mind that the modern nation of Venezuela, as we as we know it today, is essentially a a uh, an oil colony established by the United States by U.S. oil companies in the post-war period. I mean, the entire uh, uh, Venezuelan oil industry was established with uh, uh, U.S. backing, U.S. patronage, and ultimately U.S. Uh, uh, hegemony. So uh, in many ways, the oil sector has been a, a prize for the, uh, you know, the Yankee empire to the north. And when Chavez uh, assumed power, you're absolutely right. I mean, he wasn't assuming it on a, a totally radical socialist, nationalize all sectors of the economy type of platform. Rather, it was more about, uh, you know, redistributing some of the wealth, bringing uh, uh, people out of poverty, bringing indigenous and Afro-Venezuelan and other marginalized communities into the mainstream of society. It was, in some senses, um, a, a, a national... Uh, you know, a nationalistic ideology, and I, I, I say uh, nationalistic only to kind of avoid the negative connotations of nationalism, because the sort of nationalism that you've seen in Latin America of the so-called Pink Tide period, that nationalism is, is I think, rather distinct from some of the other nationalisms we see, and certainly what we see happening all over the global north today. But in a, anyway, uh, to return to the point, uh, the 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 PDVSA, that's the uh, that's the Venezuelan state oil company, uh, was fully nationalized a few years after the coup. I believe it was in 2005. And part of the reason for this was that Chavez, number one, didn't want to remain dependent upon foreign oil companies and foreign investors. Uh, and certainly because he, I think he understood, uh, and we've seen this recently, that this was a tremendous liability for Venezuela, that Venezuela to a large extent was dependent dependent for its economic survival on outside actors. And what he wanted was a, a, a Bolivarian revolution and a Venezuela that was in some senses self-sufficient, at least economically. And it has to be, it has to be noted here that when we're talking about this period, we're talking about a period in which oil was rising to unprecedented heights in terms of value. So this was a major boon for the Venezuelan economy. This was 
in in many ways the driving force that allowed things like the Mission Vivienda, which is the housing mission, the mission to build a million low cost or, or no cost housing units for the poor and working class of Venezuela. This is what funded the uh, the the Cuban Doctor program. This is what funded the healthcare investment, the literacy programs, the establishment of all of the various social programs was to a large extent bankrolled by oil because it must be said that Venezuela's economy was and remains rather one-dimensional in terms of how it generates revenue. Uh, oil export is the dominant uh, source of revenue. And uh, as Chavez understood at the time, and as we're seeing today, that can be quite beneficial when the prices are high, but it can be a tremendous liability, not only when prices collapse, as they did in 2014-2015, but also when those who control the levers of international finance want to target you. And that is also what we're seeing happening today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, recently, I mean, just today, the Washington Post and all these lot of different outlets are are basically saying, look at Venezuela, it's a total failure of socialism. And that's why we need to rethink this, this economic system that they're implementing and look at all the people that are in line for food. Look at all the people. Look at the violence. What 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 happened? What led to where we're at? Uh, not only with this sort of the anti-socialist rhetoric, but also uh, what happened to the revolution after Chavez died? Did did the revolution die itself, or did it morph into something different, or was it corrupt to begin with? Complicated. It's complicated because there's many different factors at play. I think, as I mentioned already, uh, the collapse of oil prices really precipitates this economic crisis in many ways. Uh, uh, you have to keep in mind that we're talking about uh, the revenue source for the country that 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 uh, comprises, I believe, about 85 percent. It might actually be 90 percent of uh, of the export revenue that Venezuela generates comes from oil. So if you if you consider a country being, let's say, 90% dependent upon one specific commodity, and that commodity loses 80% of its value in just a couple of months, that will trigger an economic crisis. I don't care how well your country is doing. So I think the collapse of oil in many ways was a primary driver of this. Um, Also, a lot of international pressure, international pressure, both in terms of uh, subversion of the economy, speculating against the Bolivar currency, uh, attempting to freeze the country out of international finance, which is something that we've seen uh, especially recently and uh, since 2017, the use of sanctions, which are a very potent uh, weapon and a a weapon that I think those of us who follow anti-war issues understand is in many ways designed not to target the leadership of the country, but rather to sow chaos within the society as a whole, uh, to to deprive the economy of valuable resources, valuable commodities, and also to generally drive up the psychological toll that these uh, that this sort of privation causes. I mean, like I said, when I was in Venezuela in, in 2015, it was not nearly as bad as it is today, but even then I remember uh, not being able to find deodorant. In, in the stores anywhere. It just it didn't exist anywhere. Toilet paper was harder to come by. Certain very basic staples of everyday life had become quite challenging, and ultimately that does have a psychological toll 
on the society. So there have been there have been quite a number of uh, factors that play into that, and it must be said, and I think it's it's important that we're as honest as we can in terms of our analysis. That there's also been a tremendous amount of mismanagement, poorly thought out policies by Maduro and some of the people around him. Uh, now, some of them, it should be noted, are you know out of necessity. Some of them bad management. Some of them uh, pure corruption. There's a number of issues in terms of uh, internal uh, conflicts within the Socialist Party itself, within the coalitions. Uh, so this is a, as it is always with um, you know complex issues. This is a multi multivalent question. So I think that ultimately, when we look at how we've gotten to this situation today, it is a combination of all of these things: internal domestic considerations, external meddling, external destabilization, and subversion, and then of course, uh, uh, you know, some of the more global conditions, market conditions, and some of the global geopolitical questions that also played a significant role in uh, bringing Venezuela to this point. And let's talk about that point for a minute now. Let's, we are in the midst of potential military intervention. Um, this is Trump. Uh, what, what's brought this to this point and why is Trump so interested in Venezuela at, at one time, you know, he'll talk about how we're now energy independent, um, yet here he is focusing on a country which looks to be because of its natural resources. Uh, what, what gives? Well, it, it is interesting, and it's it, in some senses it would seem almost uh, you know contradictory, but I don't think it is. I think that there are a number of uh, a number of factors to consider here. Yes, the United States is increasingly becoming energy independent and becoming a net exporter of oil. Uh, I mean, if you follow the oil industry news, I mean it's it's almost literally every single day you're hearing about uh, new discoveries in the Permian Basin in Texas, uh, fracking mm-hmm. and new fracking technology which are going to make it cheaper, more efficient, etc. New infrastructure being developed in the form of pipelines, in the form of new ports like at Corpus Christi, which is now going to be able to uh, accommodate the, uh, what do they call them, supermassive, the new generation of supermassive oil tankers. So the United States is very much pushing in the direction of becoming an exporter of oil and a, a dominant player on the global market. So it would seem then that the desire for something like Venezuelan oil, which itself is, uh, you know, very heavy tar kind of tar sand sort of oil, which requires a different, sometimes more intensive refining process, that it would be somehow less uh, appealing to the United States. And in one sense, I think that's true. Uh, But in another sense, I think that it's not so much the oil itself as it is leverage and control over the Venezuelan oil sector. In other words, Venezuela, which is a major supplier to the United States, has some degree or had some degree of political leverage because of its U.S. subsidiary of Citgo and because of its uh, major position within uh, international oil markets. Now, if you are 
to, say, uh, institute a regime change, or even, say, if you are to use international finance muscle, you can do quite a lot to control the Venezuelan economy. And in fact, that's what's happened. Uh, I wrote in my piece that we mentioned at the outset of this conversation about the fact, and quite quite little mentioned, I think, by most uh, analysis of Venezuela, the fact that as Venezuela was entering into the most critical phase of this uh, ongoing economic uh, uh, collapse, it sought new financing, new loans that could bridge it from one month to the next, one quarter to the next. And uh, because the United States, and by the way, we should note, under the under both the Obama and Trump administrations, because the United States had so aggressively targeted, sanctioned, and attempted to isolate Venezuela, it forced uh, the Maduro government to look to uh, outside parties, and in particular, Russia. So what Venezuela did was it basically made a deal with Putin and the and, and Putin's government to sell uh, in exchange for one and a half billion dollars as a loan to sell 49.9% stake of Citgo, which is the U.S. subsidiary of Venezuela's oil uh, uh, national oil company. So now what does this mean? I mean, think about this. This means that for a relatively low price, I mean, one and a half billion is a lot of money, of course, but I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that much. Uh, For one and a half billion dollars, the Russians took control or took, you know, effective control over a major swath of Venezuela's oil sector and particularly that which that part of it which touches directly the U.S. economy, U.S. oil uh, reserves, U.S. oil imports and so forth. So this was naturally deeply worrying to the establishment in the United States and Reuters actually had an excellent piece in the beginning of 2018 in which they broke the story that there was a, a a still rather shadowy consortium of investors, presumably millionaires and billionaires, getting together to basically pitch a deal to the Venezuelan government where they would buy, you know, essentially buy out the terms of that loan, bring a hundred, you know, $1.5 billion to the table and force the sale of that debt. In other words, what they wanted to do was to prevent Russia from having lean control over Venezuela's economy because they feared that the Russians weren't really interested in Venezuela's oil. They were interested in political leverage against the United States. And this is, of course, because of the sanctions imposed on Russia after its annexation of Crimea, its involvement in the uh, civil war in East Ukraine, and a number of other factors as well. So those sanctions, Russia has been desperately trying to get out from under them, and I think that one of the ways in which they uh, decided they might actually be able to do that was to uh, rather opportunistically move into Venezuela and attempt to become a major player there. And I think that's exactly what happened. And the people who are in the uh, strategic planning circles in Washington, I think, correctly understood the threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about the Venezuelan oil for a second. I mean, you mentioned earlier how obviously uh, the commodity prices and pi- price per barrel has gone down precipitously from almost $100 a barrel. Now it's what? It's like 50 to 60. Um, but what kind of oil is in Venezuela? Because it's, yes, they are, have the largest, one of the largest reserves in the world, but it's not an easily, easily accessible oil. Is that right? It's something that uh, would require the extraction methods are very expensive. It's not something, it's, it's similar to right shale uh, oil here in the U.S., is that correct? 
Yeah, I mean it's like uh, it's it's like tar sands, and I, without yeah. getting without getting into you know the nitty gritty of oil stuff. I mean, put put simply, it's very thick, very heavy, and requires uh, significantly more. Uh, uh, you know, more investment in the refining process. And when I say investment, I don't just mean capital investment in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the infrastructure itself. I mean, it requires modern equipment. You have to continue to have access to financing to be able to update and to modernize the equipment to do this as efficiently as possible. It requires a lot of, uh, there, there are a number of factors that go into it that I think are not necessarily true, say, when you're, you know, uh, uh, in place like Saudi Arabia or Iran or wherever, where it flows much more easily and is much more easily accessible. However, it has to be said that uh, there is another aspect to this, and that is that Venezuela has a tremendous amount of uh, still unexplored and unproven reserves, and it's not 100% clear exactly uh, the qualities of that uh, oil that's down there, but it's certainly enough to attract the interest of ExxonMobil, which has been very, very active uh, for a number number of years in Venezuela and has a long and 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 rather uh, interesting beef with the uh, with the Chavez government going back a number of years when Chavez took on uh, the man who would who would become the uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson when he was CEO of ExxonMobil because ExxonMobil was booted out of Venezuela by Chavez and so they had a long-running vendetta against Chavez and it's interesting Josh that that in, in in looking at the way that this all played out, you would think somebody like Tillerson, who was head of ExxonMobil, who, I mean, must have had Chavez as, like, enemy number one on his list, he was the one who was arguing for restraint around Venezuela. Apparently, according to the Associated Press, in 2017, well before the this current period of the crisis in Venezuela, Trump was talking about asking rather incredulously, why can't I just invade Venezuela? Why can't we just invade Venezuela? And according to the Associated Press, which named, uh, well, uh, cited at least multiple people who were in the room, it was Rex Tillerson and H.R. McMaster, the former national security advisor, very much a representative of the Pentagon and Pentagon-style thinking. It was those two, an oil man and a Pentagon man, who were absolutely stunned and, and basically said that this is an impossibility, that you can't do that, that it would be absolutely insane to do that. So it, there, there's sort of an irony here that an oil man and a Pentagon man were the voices of restraint. And now that they're gone and they've been replaced by, I mean, really like the most unhinged kind of lunatics that you could ever put into these positions. People like John Bolton as now the national security advisor in, in, in place of McMaster. And of course, Mike Pompeo, the messianic uh, lunatic in charge of the secretary, you know, the secretary of state who replaced Tillerson. I mean, with these guys in power in, in, in place now, they're not restraining Trump's insanity and they're in, if anything, playing into it and talking it up. So it is a very, very dangerous moment. And that danger has to do with the oil. It has to do with control over the oil, the oil market. It also has to do with uh, minerals. Uh, Venezuela has tremendous reserves of gold, including gold that is, is still uh, untapped. 
Uh, it has tremendous reserves of diamonds and, and iron ore and other minerals that are very, very valuable. And, and uh, the Chinese have been quite active in trying to get concessions for mining in Venezuela, which they've been you know mostly successful at, although, uh, you know, to... To his credit, Maduro has been, although he's been desperate for cash, he has been hesitant to push too far in that direction because of the environmental costs and because of the displacement of the indigenous communities and so forth, which do have a voice. And, um, well, I'll return to that in a second. But um, the point is that there are a number of factors, a number of things that uh, the imperialists, both in the United States and around the world, see in Venezuela that they desperately want to control. And then ultimately, I think that there there is a political side to all of this, and that is the need, the desire, the 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 burning drive to destroy the Bolivarian Revolution. And I think here it would be important to note that when I when I say the Bolivarian Revolution, that is the term, and that's the term that people use. But when you go to Venezuela, they will be very quick to remind you that it is not a revolution that has simply happened. They call right. it the, the Bolivarian process. Mm-hmm. And they see it as a process, not as something that has culminated, not as something that was led by a person in Chavez or by the figure of Maduro, but rather a grassroots kind of socialist process. And and the, the, the word process, I think, is key because it's, it's more than just redistribution of wealth and becoming inclusive of the marginalized communities and all of that. It's also a decolonial process, a process of unraveling 200 plus years of colonialism, one that doesn't happen simply overnight. And this Bolivarian process the ideals of the Bolivarian Revolution, that is something that the United States desperately wants to destroy. They want to destroy socialism, but more importantly, they want to destroy the idea of regional integration, of grassroots democracy, of all of the things that the Bolivarian Revolution and Hugo Chavez stood for. That's what they desperately want to destroy because they want to eradicate the idea that Latin America can be something other than America's backyard. So do you see Maduro as essentially stuck inside of this geopolitical puzzle between multiple factors, right? The U.S., Russia, China, and to some extent. And how do you see this playing out? Well, he's definitely in a tough spot. I, it's it's definitely an unenviable one. Uh, and and as I said already, you know, Maduro's made mistakes. I think Maduro would probably be, you know, uh, you know, would would admit that. I know he did after the elections in 2015, which was the creation of the Constituent Assembly, which was uh, Maduro's kind of recognition that the Socialist Party had not been, uh, you know, upholding its its side of the uh, the bargain for you know the Bolivarian Revolution bargain as it were uh, so I think that I think that Maduro at least to some degree is it would have enough humility to be able to say that uh, at the same time yes he 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 is in a very difficult spot so he's responsible for some of that but a lot of that is really circumstances as I said I mean he took over he took over just at the time that oil prices were about to collapse he has been presiding over an economy that has been in free fall for reasons that are well beyond just his own making uh, so I don't know how exactly this ends. What I can tell you is what I can tell you is this. 
And I know you know this, Josh, since you were there as well, although it was it was certainly a different time when you were there about 10 years earlier than I was. Uh, but every Chavista I ever spoke to, and this was true in the working class neighborhoods, this was true of the uh, groups at the Anarchist Collective, the radio station, at the at the commune outside of Caracas, at the places on, you know out, uh, in, in other cities as well. Everybody I ever talked to was 100% open, willing, and, and rather forthcoming in, in biting criticisms of the Socialist Party, of Maduro, <laughs> of the political leadership. Uh, many of them said that they were failing, that they were, uh, you know, focused on themselves, the corruption. You know, you would hear terms like the, uh, you know, the, the Chavista bourgeoisie and things like this, right? So um, I think it's important to remember that the Bolivarian Revolution and the adherence of the Bolivarian Revolution, they identify with the revolution, not with Maduro, not with Cabello, not with Chavez, but with the revolution. Yes, Chavez is the father of the revolution in many senses, but Chavez is gone. His 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 likeness remains, but Chavez is gone, and there is no there is no you know delusions about that. So the reason I say that is because there are a number of scenarios in which the revolution itself can survive and thrive and so forth, and there could still be a transition of power. However, it has to be said unequivocally and without any ambiguity whatsoever that the United States nor anybody else has absolutely zero right to force that change or transition of power. That can only be done by the people of Venezuela. There is a constitution in Venezuela. In fact, I have a copy of it sitting on my bookshelf. It's, uh, it's, it's something that the people of Venezuela, well, I should say the, the, the vast bulk of the people of Venezuela, really have as a point of pride. It is probably, I mean, unless I could, you know, unless somebody can come up with something better, it is probably the most progressive constitution in the world. It, it enshrines rights going way beyond anything we could even conceive of in the United States. Uh, rights as far as economic rights, right to health care, right to clean water, right to education— all these different things that are all part of the Constitution. The Constitution is rather clear about how power can transition, about what conditions, under what conditions that can happen, and what Guaido, that is the self-declared right-wing uh, uh, leader who is now being recognized by the United States and a number of other European and North American countries as the so-called leader of Venezuela, this is this is precisely the issue, is that he's attempting to use a a part of the Constitution to justify it, even though if you actually read the Constitution, it's 100% the opposite of what he's doing, and that situation does not apply. So the reason I bring all of that up is because the, the, the people of Venezuela have the mechanisms in place to change their government if they choose to do it. The issue is that every election in recent memory has been between the forces of Chavismo, like the Socialist Party and its allies, and I could talk a little more about that if that's something we want to talk about, and the far right. So it's been somewhat of a Hobson's choice for a lot of people. So in 15, when the right wing won, part of the reason they won, I would say the, 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 really the determining reason that they won was not 
a desire to have them in power. It was a protest vote against the Chavismo. It was a protest vote, not even against Chavismo, but against Maduro and the Socialist Party. I mean, this was what uh, the anarchist group, when I went and visited an anarchist collective uh, uh, outside or in Caracas in one of the working class neighborhoods, this was what they were talking about. These were Chavistas. These were people who supported Chavez, support the Bolivarian Revolution, but by 2015 had become rather disillusioned. Now, I disagreed with the non-participation because of the stakes. Uh, but again, I'm, you know, I'm not Venezuelan and I'm an outsider. So I kind of, you know, tried to keep my opinion to myself to whatever extent I could. But um, uh, that was a rather common uh, position that they were so disgusted with the corruption and the breakdown and all these other things that they weren't coming out and supporting Maduro in the way that they would normally have done. Uh, the other thing that should be kept in mind, too, is the uh, campaign of uh, targeted assassinations that have been taking place over the last 15 years. One reason why people ask, well, people often ask, well, if Maduro, if, you know, if, if Maduro doesn't necessarily, you know, want to make himself into a, you know, authoritarian dictator, then why doesn't he just step aside for new, younger leaders to emerge? Well, one of the reasons is because a number of those leaders who were up and coming and were emerging have been assassinated. Uh, one famous one, uh, Robert Serra, who was seen by many and called by many to be the young Chavez or the next Chavez. This was a, a, a charismatic, energetic, beloved figure in the working class neighborhoods. He was murdered. Uh, and uh, that assassination has been tied directly to the former president of Colombia, Alvaro Uribe, and the networks that he runs. And he is, of course, directly connected to the Clintons and Bush and the Washington consensus. So there is also this, there's many dynamics to the story in Venezuela that have to kind of be, you have to kind of parse through all of them to understand a very complicated political story there. So um, to get back to your question, Josh, I don't know how this is going to play out. I would, at this point, at this stage of crisis, I wouldn't want to see any kind of a forced transition because of what that would ultimately mean. You would be inviting civil war in Venezuela under those conditions. There needs to be some kind of a mediation process, whether that is by an international force like the UN or, uh, you know, neutral parties or whatever that could be. Uh, that's likely what's going to have to happen. Happen. The problem is that every element uh, that has been suggested by the uh, both the Maduro government and its allies internationally has been rejected by the United States. They don't want the United Nations or the Vatican or any of the other forces that have already volunteered to come in and mediate this process. What they want is they want to control a and and effect a regime change. That's why they use the Organization of American States and the so-called Lima Group, which is based basically a right-wing Latin American grouping. And I guess I should note, that's the other part of this story. I don't mean to meander in too many different directions, but we have to keep in mind that this is all happening against the backdrop of a right-wing resurgence throughout Latin America. You have a fascist president in Brazil, Bolsonaro. You have the right, the far right now again in power in Colombia under Ivan Duque. So in, in, in a sense, Venezuela is very much surrounded. Of course, Mauricio Macri in 
Argentina, of course, also, uh, you know, the right-wing government in, in Peru and elsewhere. Uh, really, only Mexico at this point is the outlier in recent years. Uh, Mexico, with uh, the election of AMLO, has kind of gone in the other direction. But every other country in Latin America has moved far to the right. And this has yeah. also isolated Venezuela and, and cut Venezuela off from some of the political backing that it had had recently. I mean, when international forces like, uh, you know, the Brazilian government and the Bolivian government and the Ecuadorian government and elsewhere, where they would come to the aid of Venezuela, they are now part of the pack of wolves attempting to dismember it. You touched on it briefly uh, earlier, but if let's say Guaido does become empowered as the U.S. and the imperialism might dictate is the outcome. How do you see that, if, if that is to happen, what kind of impact would that have on the, on Russia's interests in Venezuela? Well, I, Potentially. I, I think Russia would be ejected from Venezuela. I think that that would probably be one of the first things that would happen. And part of the way that it, part of the way that it would happen would be a, a, I would, I would guess a rapid and, and rather, uh, uh, sweeping privatization program, a privatization program that would seek to undo all of the nationalizations that Chavez had undertaken. I think the oil sector would of course be the first one on the chopping block. And my guess, and I mean, I, I would probably need to speak to some, uh, you know, legal experts and trade people and so forth, but my guess would be that, uh, they would, they would, uh, move to invalidate that loan, invalidate the Russian claim, uh, and do so perhaps under the auspices that the Russians coerced an illegitimate government. I don't know what pretext they would use, but I imagine that they would, that, that the Russians would find themselves ejected from Venezuela because I think that that would be probably at the very top of the priority list for Bolton and Pompeo, who are, you know, uh, unreconstructed cold warriors in many ways. Uh, so it, since this revolution, the Bulgarian revolution is beyond Maduro, that it's actually a long-standing movement that will go on in the future. Do you see that being the case, no matter what the outcome of this is? Meaning, let's say Guaido becomes empowered, but what if there's not food back on the shelves? What if, you know, things are, are still where they're at today? What what kind of reaction do you think that you would see in Venezuela? Would it be war or would it be uh, more, you know, bickering and, and back and forth? And would other, you know, interests become more involved in the, in the area? Well, I, I personally don't think that the that those aspects of the economic crisis would continue. I think that what would happen is the uh, the sanctions would be lifted. Uh, the 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 spigots of international finance would once again flow, and all of a sudden, magically, the uh, the oligarchs who control things like food and and beverage distribution in Venezuela, the CEO of Polar, for example, who is one of the most powerful people in Venezuela, who controls much of that infrastructure, they would also open up the floodgates. All of a sudden, quite by magic, I think, almost as if by magic, uh, shelves would be restocked. 
and goods would be available. So in that sense, I think that uh, the right wing would be counting on a return to normalcy would then legitimize their rule. Unfortunately for them, and I think as you're kind of uh, alluding to, Josh, I, I think you're alluding to, uh, I don't believe that it would be quite so simple for them because uh-huh. you have you have more than a million people, and I don't know what the number is. I know what the number was at one time, but uh, we can't assume that it is still that way today. But certainly you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Chavistas, that is, people who are not only committed to the Bolivarian Revolution, committed to socialism, but committed to the vision of Chavez, in, 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 quite directly, who are uh, armed and who are prepared to defend their hard-won, hard-fought gains. So what I think you're going to, what I think you would see is you would see localized and then perhaps also generalized struggles over very concrete and material issues. So the oil sector, for instance, is something that's pretty big and most people do not necessarily encounter it on a day-to-day basis. But what you would also see, and Guaido has even talked about this, I think you would see rapid privatization of the public housing sector, of all of that public housing that was built by Chavez and Maduro's governments. I think that would then be moved to privatize, would be privatized. I think that uh, the healthcare system would move towards privatization. So what you would see is millions of people becoming shut out of these uh, gains that they had had. And that is what I truly believe would really spark the kind of resistance that could potentially spill over into civil war. Uh, Civil war is an extreme scenario, but it is a very real possibility because of the nature of the right wing uh, in Venezuela and in Latin America. These people are, I mean, they they view the Bolivarian Revolution, and particularly the people who supported, and especially the darker-skinned and indigenous and Afro-Venezuelan communities, they view them as subhumans, you understand? Mm-hmm. They, they view them as, as, as a lesser race in the, way that, in the way that, you know, white elites do all over the world, okay? So what I think would happen is an attempt to, you know, kind of put them back in their place, And unfortunately for the right wing, I don't think that that's how history is going to work. I don't think they can go home again in terms of their hegemony in Venezuela. And if they were to do that, as I I mentioned, I think they would. In 2015, as I said, within 24 hours, they wanted to storm Chavez's tomb, which is a sacred space for a lot of people in Venezuela. They wanted to storm it and shut it down and burn it to the ground, rip down, quite literally, rip down his portraits from the walls. The very symbols of the revolution is what they wanted to destroy. So what do you think they're going to do to the public housing projects? What do you think they're going to do to the infrastructure investments, the skyway that connects the poor communities in the hills with the rest of Caracas? You think that they're just going to continue funding that? Of course not. So there would be a massive attack on all aspects of the social welfare state. And I think that in a way, has that not already happened? Right. I mean, I'm just throwing it out there. Has, as you say, the oligarchs, the spigots could turn on, food could go back onto the shelves, but hasn't there already been tremendous setbacks? And why is there not more of a push by the left in Venezuela to do away with Maduro? And why are we seeing it instead from from the right? 
because the because I think that the, the left understands that that's not the balance of forces that they're dealing with. Uh, one of the things one of the things I learned when I was in Venezuela and talking to people who are uh, not associated with the PSUV, the Socialist Party, but with other leftist political parties, was a, a tremendous amount of um, of. Uh, criticism and uh, in some cases, you know, really deep-seated hatred towards the Socialist Party from uh, other leftist parties. But, and they all said this to me with the exception of one, but uh, the, the rest of them all kind of said this to me, that they understood that when it, when it came to elections, when it came to time to actually vote, they had to remain in coalition with the Socialist Party or else the left would collapse. And the right wing would dominate, would dominate the electoral space and would dominate the country. And the thing is, the truth is that what attacks have already been made against the, uh, the gains of the revolution pale in comparison to what will happen if the right wing fully consolidates control. I mean, right now you're talking about things like, you know, the, the, the Cuban doctors, uh, you know, leaving places like Brazil or Cuban yeah. doctors potentially being ejected from Venezuela. Well, that's terrible and heartbreaking and horrifying, but that's nothing compared to what will happen when they start shutting down hospitals that have been built in the last 15 years, when they start pushing the indigenous and Afro-Venezuelan communities back to the periphery, which they've already said they want to do. So I think that what you're, what you're getting at is correct in one sense, that there's already been a sort of an erosion of a lot of these social programs. On the other hand, there has not been an all-out full frontal assault. And I think that's what's coming if Guaido and his uh, you know, U.S. puppets get power and right. and frankly and frankly this is not conjecture if you want an if you want an example of what that would look like take a look at honduras today mm -hmm. Hondur honduras today is exactly the fate of venezuela if it goes in that direction you had a left-wing president removed by uh hillary well by obama but in particular by hillary clinton and and, and her people uh, right. who provided cover for a right-wing coup that's now 10 years ago and in the 10 years since then the country has been reduced to quite literally uh one of the most dangerous places on earth but also a u.s military stomping ground a u.s narco stomping ground and a place where uh, workers and students and peasants are killed you know on the streets every single day just for protesting and yeah. that's the thing in Venezuela and, and the stakes in Venezuela are perhaps even higher because the, the amount of resources compared to Honduras, right? Yeah, exactly and on top of that the fact that the people of Venezuela have had 20 years of freedom. <laughs> Mm -hmm. When you go when you go to Venezuela, it's not some you know politically repressed place. You got right wing people standing in public squares denouncing Chavez, denouncing right. Chavismo. You've got Chavistas walking around, you know, talking about politics in the cafes and so forth. It's a very vibrant political culture, one that is not at all this sort of you know very kind of uh, uh, unrealistic, uh, rather fictionalized um, you know portrayal of some kind of you know dystopian soviet state or something it's nothing like that and it, yep. if any if anything i mean you just go to venezuela i mean aside from all of the, the the problems and everything people 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 have a great time 
uh, politics is on the tongues of everybody in the streets everywhere. Oh, when I was there, I talked to Chavistas. I talked to people that hated Chavez. And all of them were willing and excited to share their opinions. Yes. It was a very free and open uh, dialogue. And and felt extremely democratic, especially compared to the U.S. Absolutely. I mean, in in the squares in Caracas, uh, one of them was called, I think it was called uh, Speaker's Corner or Hot Corner or wherever. Uh, I think that's what it was called. Um, You know, people would just, I mean, people would just have there would just be crowds of people around whoever was speaking and then that person would give some impassioned political speech and then they would be over and then you know a grandma would come over and get in the middle of the circle and start going on about what she wanted people to say and everybody be listening and would be cheering or denouncing her depending Mm -hmm. upon you know what their views were i mean that's what venezuela how how does this fit into so many of the stories that we're reading about how the, the opposition to Maduro has been silenced, that there has been assassinations, that there has been violence. Uh, how does that fit into this narrative that actually it is a free and democratic country? Well, again, I mean, everything everything in a place like Venezuela uh, requires a little nuanced understanding. Um, there is There is violence in Venezuela. I would argue that the primary uh, violence that you have seen is violence carried out by the right wing against Chavistas. I mean, that's what the numbers indicate. Mm -hmm. When you saw the protests uh, of a a few years ago, the so-called Guarimbas, I mean, just imagine for a second, just imagine, listeners, what would happen in a city in the United States if you had gangs of young men go out into the streets and create barricades preventing traffic and throwing Molotov cocktails and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, the SWAT would be out there. There would be a massacre there. You know what I mean? Like it would be, it it wouldn't, not only would it not be tolerated. I mean, it's just, it's difficult to even conceive of. And that's the kind of violence that has been rather common in Venezuela. Now, Certainly, there have been responses from security forces. There have been a couple of instances where they have uh, used uh, excessive force, including uh, uh, murderous force a couple of times. But even in those cases, those people got prosecuted and were thrown in prison for that. So this is, again, this is not the kind of, you know, brutal dictatorship that the corporate media is trying to portray. And I think the reason they try to portray it that way is because they want you to think that Venezuela under Maduro is like, you know, Iraq under Saddam Hussein or something like this, that there is, there are simply no redeeming qualities. There's nothing to be, you know, to be defend, to be defending when it comes to Maduro and the Bolivarian revolution. And I, I disagree completely. I think, Maduro, uh, you know, there's plenty to criticize about Maduro, but uh, anybody who's been to Venezuela and who understands Venezuela knows that the idea that Maduro is leading some kind of totalitarian dictatorship is nonsense. Well, Eric, I thank you for uh, kind of parceling this out for us. It's probably a pretty good place to wrap it up. We could go on and on, and, and maybe in the future, as this continues to unfold, we can come back around and uh, address some of these other issues that we aren't able to flush out in a an hour's time. So, yeah, thanks definitely for tuning in. And, and Eric, if there's anything else you wanna wanna say, uh, let's well, do it. I just wanna say I just wanna say that um, I think that uh, the well, a couple of things. I think that Venezuela is an absolutely critical moment and a critical test for the left right now. Um, this is this is this is the moment in which. 
an anti-war movement can be resurrected. We don't have an anti-war movement in the United States. It's dead. Uh, what we had, you know, 10, 15 years ago, is it's a distant memory now. And what's happening with regard to Venezuela, this is our opportunity to rebuild an anti-war movement, one that is, is truly anti-imperialist, one that is principled, and one that recognizes its own importance. Maduro himself uh, noted in a speech of, uh, about a week and a half ago how he saw protesters on the streets in the United States and how much that, you know, kind of warmed their hearts, as it were. I mean, that's not the phrase he used, but uh, I, people do watch. People do recognize when when the left does organize itself and does speak out. And I think it is really vital that we do that in each of our towns, in each of our communities, in each of our cities. I really think that it's time to mobilize and to mobilize around this issue because remember that like I said, this is a process, and this process involves millions of people, Afro-Venezuelans, indigenous, peasants, working-class people in the cities, in the countryside, all over Venezuela, and, and really all over Latin America. And if we don't show up to defend them, and to defend them from imperialism at this critical moment, then what the fuck good are we? Well put. Thanks, Eric. And thanks, listeners, for tuning in. And check back every week as Eric will be in the uh, driver's seat next week and for the next podcast. And keep checking out uh, counterpunch.org. Uh, we will continue to cover the issue in Venezuela and so many other issues that are uh, so dire in our world today. Thanks again, Eric. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, listeners. Talk to you all soon.